let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this beautiful day. I thank you for the opportunity to gather, to discuss your word, to have friendships that are based around your word, and that we would be continually growing in the grace and the knowledge of you, and particularly today as we study anger and self-control, that we would be growing in those areas, that you give us teachable hearts, hearts that are ready to receive your word and to be transformed into the image of your son. I pray that you'd give me the words to speak and a calm heart this morning as I share, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. So of course, because I'm teaching on anger and self-control, I did something I've never done before. I left my lesson at home. <laughs> so I came here this morning, I'm like, I don't know. Some weeks, I actually think I know it well enough, I could teach it without the notes, and this was not one of those weeks. So in God's sovereignty, my son, because I was really kind of annoyed at him this morning, he was like doubled over in the class, my dummy, my dummy hurts, mom. And I'm like, ah, I really wasn't sure if he was playing me or if it really hurt, but it wasn't quite like him. So I called Dan, I'm like, you have to come get Andrew and take him home. I hate doing that because I couldn't leave school and Dan didn't want him to leave work, but anyway, Dan took him home. And because of that, he was home to scan my lecture in for me. So God works all things together. So I have a lecture, we're here, but thank you guys for being patient with me. So as we begin today in our lecture on self-control and anger, um, it's highly ironic if you had known me <laughs> that I'm teaching on this. Um, I even thought I should probably give it to somebody else. <laughs> I probably shouldn't teach on this. I'm just gonna like, keep judgment on myself. But um, hopefully we will all grow as God pulls out the weeds of anger from our heart. But I want us to, always, to begin with what we always do, a review of where we've been in the book of Proverbs. When we started our study on the book of Proverbs, we said that we were studying wisdom literature, and what is wisdom literature? Remember we said that in ancient Israel, the law was that we described it as the lattice, right? That kind of framework, that the law told you what not to do and what to do, and it was the foundation of Israel's life, right? So, but the law didn't teach you how to do things well. So we gave the example of the law says do not lie, right? But it doesn't tell you how to give a wise answer, how to comfort someone in sorrow, when to speak, when not to speak, how to approach. I mean, the book here is talking about the kings and people in court all the time. How do you approach a people in authority? How do you deal? That's what wisdom literature does. Wisdom literature is like the vines that come in and fill in the lattice, right? And so the book of Proverbs is teaching us how to live skillfully, right? And then we said that, um, that we, we looked at not only is it skillful living, but it's based in the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord isn't just having awe and reverence of God, but the fear of the Lord is obedience to his will, right? So we're looking at wisdom literature, and that in the truly wise person, it starts, true wisdom starts with fearing the Lord, which is obedience to his will. Then Sarah came and she taught us on wisdom and folly. She reminded us that folly is what's most natural to fallen man, and that, but but for the New Testament believer, for us who have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, the wisdom is to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. She pointed us to Christ as wisdom personified. No one has lived as skillfully, right, as Christ who embodied wisdom in everything that he did. And she also reminded us that wisdom really is laid out as two paths, right? Just like James laid out, there's two options. And just like the Sermon of the Mount, there is the way of folly, which leads to destruction, and the way of wisdom, which leads to great reward. But remember we said, What's why, why is it a hard sell to convince people they want to be on the path of wisdom? Because it's often delayed gratification, right? It's, it's a reward that is down the road, whereas folly will offer instant gratification. After that, Autumn taught us in Proverbs 3 on trusting the Lord, and she asked us the question, are we flourishing or are we diminishing, as she went through her whole lecture. And she said, what is the posture of our heart? Is it to trust in the Lord or to trust in our own plans? 
Then we had two weeks of extended discussion in our small groups on the family, realizing that, you know, looking at the responsibility of the father and the mother to teach the children and to pass on this truth, but also we said it takes a church, right, to raise a child and looked at all the different ways that we are to be influencing the next generation. That while the main responsibility falls on the parent, there is a call for multiple generations and for everyone to be pouring and investing into the next generation. We also spent a week talking about the sin of adultery, which is predominant throughout the book of um, Proverbs. Over and over again, he's talking about the adulteress and to be aware of her ways. And we saw the destruction that adultery can do to the family and also the danger when we, in, when we indulge in any sin, when we, when we give ourselves over to anything that is, that is against God's law and his will. And then last week, we were back together and fi- Autumn reminded us of the value and importance of godly friendship. She again gave us a question to keep asking ourselves. She said, am I using wisdom in choosing friends? And am I a wise friend to others? Because friends can be a force for great good and strengthening in our life, or can be very destructive in our life. So that's where we've been so far, and now we're going to be looking today at anger and self-control. So before we begin, I want to do a little extended introduction, just defining what is anger biblically, what does anger look like. Um, In his book, Uprooting Anger, which I'd recommend to you, Robert D. Jones defines anger as our anger is our whole personed, active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. It's our whole personed, active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. And we're going to walk through each of those. So when he says our anger is an active response, he says anger is something we do, not something we have. Right? Anger is something that is always active and always being done in scripture. It's not something that we have, like I have brown eyes. It, we, it is something that we do. It is an active response. Then our anger is a whole person active response, which means it's not just an emotion. We tend to just think about it as this emotion that's almost uncontrollable, but it always involves beliefs, motives, perceptions, and what I think is really key, desires. Anger always involves beliefs, motives, perceptions, and desires. Our anger is always in response to something. It doesn't arise out of a vacuum or appear spontaneously, right? It's always in response to something, and our anger always involves a negative moral judgment. So our anger postures us that we are going to determine what is evil, and then we, we cast negative mental votes against unjust actions, and we determine that all offenders either must be changed, must be punished, or must be removed. It issues mental death penalty verdicts against the guilty which is why Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount, right, if you say that you hate your brother or call him a fool, it's the same as murdering him, right? So when we're angry at someone, we make ourselves the judge. They have done wrong, and I'm going to determine what should happen because I'm angry at them, right? And then our anger involves a judgment against perceived evil. I think it's really important that we notice it's perceived, perceived evil. And you're thinking, well, Katie, there's righteous anger, right? Ephesians even talks about it. There's righteous anger, and that is true. There is. In the Bible, there are three kinds of anger. There's God's righteous anger, man's sinful anger, and man's righteous anger. Three kinds. Almost all anger in Scripture that deals with men deals with their sinful anger. Man having righteous anger is the exception to the rule, right? And it does happen, and we're even called to have righteous anger, but in the Proverbs we're looking at today, we're looking at man's sinful anger anger. But I, I did want to take a moment and just talk about what is righteous anger? How could we identify it? How would we know if we had righteous versus sinful anger? So again, coming from um, 
Robert's book, Uprooting, um, Robert Jones' book, Uprooting Anger, he asks some questions, um, and he defines and asks some questions that are really helpful for us in thinking through this. So righteous anger reacts against actual sin. Righteous anger reacts against actual sin. Righteous anger focuses on God and his kingdom rights and concerns, not on me, my kingdom rights and my concerns. Righteous anger is accompanied by other godly qualities and expresses itself in godly ways. I loved this quote. It said, righteous anger remains self-controlled. It keeps its head without cursing, screaming, raging, or flying off the handle, nor does it spiral downward into self-pity or despair. It does not ignore people, snub people, or withdraw from people. Instead, righteous anger carries with it the twin qualities of confidence and self-control. So if you're you know, letting it rip, it's not righteous anger. Righteous anger always is self-controlled, okay? So questions you can ask yourself are, and this is from David Powelson, do you get angry about the right things? Do you express your anger in the right way? How long does your anger last? How controlled is your anger? What motivates your anger? Is your anger primed and ready to respond to another person's habitual sins? This one really got me because I feel, especially on habitual sins, I'm like, I have been very patient with this, right? I look at some of my kids like, your whole life, I have been patient with this, and today my patience ran out. And I am justified because I was patient first, right? No, and you're just, you're ready. You're ready for the next time they do that thing, or your spouse does that thing, right? You're ready, and you're ready to be angry about it because it is just because it's been going on and on and on and on and on, right? Are we ready, so are we just primed and ready for it, or you know, that's, that's one way to think, is our, is, our righteous, righteous ang- is our anger righteous or not? And then what is the effect of your anger? You know, righteousness is going to produce righteousness. But anger humiliates and destroys, right? Unrighteous anger. So as I was thinking through this, I was just even thinking about like righteous anger reacts against actual sin. As adults, I think we get pretty, um, I, I can't remember quite how Brian said it on Sunday, but he said, but the heart wants, the will, something, and the mind justifies, <laughs> right? Our mind... I think can really do a good job of justifying our anger. And we, we've gotten really good at it. But if you look at kids, it's pretty easy to spot. So I hate to tattle on my middle son here, but he is convinced if anything of his is moved, touched, disrupt, ruined, anything has happened to his possession, it was Andrew, my youngest son, who did it. No questions, no need to do any investigative work, no need to, to do, and it's just for sure it's fact. Like the sun rises in the morning, Andrew has ruined his things. So the other day, I, heard, I was in my bedroom and I heard it starting out there. It's not where I left it, Andrew. You did it. And he's just getting angry and escalating. I walked out. I was like, actually, Danny, I moved it. I took and there wasn't this like humility of like, oh, I'm sorry, I was wrong. It was kind of like, yeah, well, this time he lucked out. No. <laughs> but it's always him the other times, right? And so he was super angry over a perceived injustice. And a lot of times, though we're much better at masking it, that's what we do. You know, we are upset over what we have perceived without having all the facts, judging motives of people's hearts. Well, if they did that, they must be thinking this. If they said that, they can't. And it's, and it's about us, and it's about how we have perceived the situation. It's about our kingdom and our rights that are violated, right? So what causes anger? What are the heart motives that cause anger? Again, um, from his... Um, is actually was in multiple books on anger. I think all the biblical counseling people got together and shared their notes because I thought and everything. But what causes um, anger are really our desires, okay? Again, he says that entrenching, battling desires and pleasures are one reason. Unmet, ruling wants and desires. Covenant and envy. And selfish motives even for a good thing. 
Elizabeth Elliot says, where there is deep restlessness for which we find no explanation, it may be due to the greed of being what our loving Father never meant for us to be. Peace lies in the trusting acceptance of his design, his gifts, his appointment of place, position, and capacity. So you have to really ask yourself when you're angry, why are you angry? And almost always with us, it's a, you're angry because you weren't treated the way you sh- thought you should be treated. You didn't get what you thought you deserved. You were angry because you were hurt. We're going to get there when we said, a, you know, um, a harsh word stirs up anger. They, they were mean to me, and that hurts you, and so you're going to def- be defensive and come out in anger. Um, anger can show itself because you deserve something. I deserve a better job. I deserve that promotion. I deserve to be married. I deserve to have kids. I deserve to have kids that respect and obey me perfectly all of the time. I des- deserve a spouse who appreciates everything that I do for him all of the time and is very thankful, right? Like you, whatever you think you deserve, whatever you think is your right, whatever you think you are owed, we get angry when we don't get it, right? It's our desires, right? So we're going to look through four Proverbs today. And our, we had, so with that understanding of anger, righteous anger, man's unrighteous anger, and we're going to now look in these Proverbs, looking at man's unrighteous anger. We're going to start in Proverbs 14, 29. So if you would turn with me there, Proverbs 14, 29. And we have four points today. And our first one is, <coughs> excuse me, the wise do not exalt their anger. The wise do not exalt their anger. And just even thinking through that headline, that, that, that um, headline, that point, um, made me realize that, in a sense, our culture can, to a, to a degree, we don't like somebody who's totally out of control, but there is a way in which we can kind of value anger. That's a strong person, right? They don't, they're not going to get walked over. They, it has to be within a little margin, right? We don't like someone who's too far, but there is an anger, anger that we can almost kind of exalt as, you know, that's a strong person. But Proverbs 14.29 says, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts his folly. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts his folly. So remember how we said back very beginning lecture on Proverbs, that the first nine chapters are exhortational poems that prepare our heart to receive the true Proverbs. It's the father, like, preparing the son's heart, and there's nine chapters worth, I think, 12 poems. I can't remember exactly now. And now we're into the real Proverbs, a true proverb, and we're in the first section of them, and this section is about living in wisdom. And so it says, whoever is slow to anger, another word for that is patience. Whoever is patient has great understanding. This word for patient is used four times in Proverbs, but outside of Proverbs, it is only used to describe God. It is the patience that God has when he lives with Israel and his glory comes down in the cloud, right, in the book of Exodus, and he lives among his people, and you could basically characterize Israel as being pretty much constantly rebellious. I mean, they had their moments, but pretty much, and he doesn't wipe them off the planet. In fact, they're still a nation of Israel today, right? That kind of, that a holy God lived with such an unholy people. It's the kind of patience that God shows when he sends Jonah to Nineveh, and he doesn't wipe out the Assyrians, but he gives them time to repent. Romans said it is the patience of God that leads men to repentance, right? It's the kindness and patience of God that leads to, repa- excuse me, to repentance. So when we are patient, when we are the one who is slow to anger, this is a God-like quality. This is us following in Christ's footsteps, and it's one of those communicable attributes of God that we are called to be like him in. It's, it's when God relents from bringing disaster that is deserved upon men. The patient man here has control of his emotions, 
because he's trusting in God. And in fact, I really, <laughs> you're gonna see throughout the whole book, trusting God, fear of God, it's, it's woven into everything we're gonna talk about. Because often, anger is over something wrong done, right? And, and so we want justice, but who is the judge and who brings justice? God does. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, right? And so this man is calm, not bringing about his own exacting revenge, but knowing that God is going to do what is right and just. He's trusting in God, and he has control of his emotions. This patience, Walt Key says in his commentary, gives space to the sinner to repent, to renounce his wrongdoing. Since patience is godlike and not natural to human beings, it is characterized as great competence. You have great competence when you have this kind of patience. I was thinking about this um, when you're angry, at least when I'm angry, I usually don't want the other person to repent. I really want my pound of flesh, right? <laughs> like, you have crossed the line, and now you get the wrath. Like, I'm not, I don't care if you're sorry. In fact, if you're sorry too soon, I don't get to give, like, my full punishment, right, in my anger. But I just was thinking about, you know, he says patience gives space to the sinner to repent and to renounce his wrongdoing, right? That is the goal that we want. We want to see sinners walking with the Lord. <laughs> I was also reminded, I almost didn't share the story because my dad's a great dad and he's very wise and I don't want to throw him under the bus, but it, <laughs> the story came to my mind. When we were kids, one of my dad's friends, which is a whole other story in itself, had given him a really expensive, well-trained champion bird dog. And he really did it because he saw how much my younger sister, who's a dog fanatic, like loved this dog. And he was like, here, you well, actually, he had to sneak the dog into the car. <laughs> my dad was like hours away, not hours, but he was far enough down the road on our road trip before he found out we had the dog. Because um, he's like, no, I'm not taking your dog. It's too, it's too valuable. And, he's, and so when he went inside, he's like, here, put her in the back. And I'm like, I'm not putting that dog in the back of my car. I am not tricking my dad. This was like the only person, though, that was like my dad's dad. I knew if I disobeyed Dr. Heine, I'd be in just as much trouble as for tricking my dad. I just felt trapped between these two authorities as a kid. He's just like, put the dog in the car, I'll take responsibility for whatever happens. So we did, and we got the dog, we got Chip. Anyway, uh, my dad found out far enough down the road he couldn't turn around. So we're on another road trip, visiting my grandma in Oregon, we have Chip. We pulled into a restaurant, rest it's late at night, we let the dogs go to the bathroom, we all get in the car, and it's one of those things everyone else thinks somebody has the dog. So we start driving down the road a little bit, and someone's like, where's Chip? And Dad's like, girls, it's not funny. And we're all like, we knew it wasn't funny. <laughs> we're like, um, we're not joking, Dad. <laughs> like, we don't know where Chip is. Girls, this is not a time for a good joke. Dad, we're not, girls, no, Dad, we really don't have Chip. Like, we know. And he was just like, there is no chance that that dog is going to be back there. There was, there was all sorts of truckers. Like, everyone will know the value of that dog. That dog is with a trucker. It is gone. It is done. I mean, we are speeding as fast as we can to turn around and get back to this, this thing. And the whole time, he's like, never, never, never are we going to find this dog. So finally, a brave girl in the back pipes up and goes, well, we could pray. So you do that. The dog's not going to be there. <laughs> okay, so we prayed quietly in the back where you're going to near us. He flips a Yui, he gets back over there, and we pull in, and I'm not joking, like, as the words are coming out of his mouth, we will never see that dot. Chip walks up. <laughs> we will never, there's Chip. And, and we just silence suspended on the car. Somebody opened the door, Chip got in, we shut the door, and we just drove in silence. <laughs> no one was saying anything. So then finally, somebody go, dad goes, well, girls, you should probably pray and thank God because the only way you got that dog was because somebody prayed. And Debbie in the back, my younger sister goes, don't worry, we will. <laughs> like, you didn't pray for that dog to come, we'll thank God he got here, don't worry. <laughs> and, but it, and so it, what I'm trying to illustrate with this is in the angry man, which my dad isn't, like my dad was a wonderful dad and wise most of the time and picking a bad story on him, but the angry man commits folly when he vents his anger and then he becomes its victim. 
And that's what it says right here. It says, a man of great understanding has a, sorry, he who has a hasty temper exalts his folly, and he becomes the victim of his folly. So in that moment, which again, my dad, not characterized by this, if he ever listens to this, um, (laughs) not characterized by this, but in that moment, he really couldn't teach what he wanted to about thanking the Lord in prayer, right? He kind of had to eat his words and, and be humble about that because he wasn't willing to say, let's trust God and pray and see what he delivers. And my youngest sister was very quick to let him know that she had not missed that illustration. So you can become the vict- victim of your temper. You become the victim of your folly. So that's our first one. The wise do not exalt their anger. We do not think that it is something of value and of greatness because we will fall prey to our very anger. Secondly, the wise give a soft answer. If you just turn down in the page just a little bit in your Bible, um, Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A single word can stir up wrath. A single word, right? And in the context here, which is interesting, I didn't know, because the bigger context right now is talking about the king and his court. And so the wrath here is the king's wrath, and it's somebody, whether it's you know, one of the, his officials in the court or one of the people, they have said something that the king is not happy about. And when the king's angry, the consequences are a lot worse for the kingdom, right, than just when mom or dad are angry, right? Because he has power that can extend his wrath in a great way. So the king, the authority, he is angry. But a soft word turns away wrath. Again, Waltke says, self-control is necessary in order to turn back and not stir up the potentially damaging, foolish emotion that destroys social relationships. It is a thoughtful, compassionate answer to an opponent without compromising the truth. So the king is warned about his destructive anger. It's not justified. But when you're under the king, when you're the lower man on the totem pole, you can't just go toe-to-toe with him. When you're mad, I'm mad too, right? That doesn't work. So how do you turn away this kind of wrath? You have the wise, compassionate, soft answer that doesn't stir up. And a beautiful (coughs) illustration of this, and we just covered it with um, Pastor Brian in 1 Samuel, is Nabal, David, and Abigail. So if you remember, Nabal was the man that the Bible describes him as a worthless man, right? A worthless man who was very rich and had all these sheep. And David, without being asked, had just been protecting his property from Philistine raiders and anybody who would have taken advantage of him. But when David had a need, he went and asked, you know, I've been taking care of you. Could you please help meet my need? And Nabal was like, who's David? I'm not helping you, right? He was a worthless man. But technically, Nabal was within his rights. He hadn't hired David. He hadn't asked David. And he didn't owe David anything as much as it would have been a godly or right response, it wasn't a required by the law response, right? He says, who's David? I don't care. And David's like, well, I know who I am. I'm the anointed king, and I'm going to show you who I am. I'm going to come wipe you out, right? We'll we'll, we'll clear off this issue of who I am. He's instantly angry with a murderous anger that's going to go take somebody's life. Well, the servants know what's happening, even though the worthless man is kind of clueless, and they go tell Abigail. And Abigail knows what's happening, right? She knows great danger is coming on her home. And so she gets food ready, And she intercepts David, and she reminds him of who God is and what his law says, right? You don't want this blood on you. You can't be one who's killing his people when you're not officially the king yet, right? Without the authority and the judgment. Like, this is murder, and you you don't want to do that. And it calmed David's wrath, right? And then who brought judgment? Because the next day, when Nabal finds out about this, he has a heart attack. And a couple of days later, he dies. God took care of it right? And it wasn't on David. So we have to be people who give a soft and wise answer. Charles Bridges in his commentary on Proverbs says, self-pleasing, sarcastic, um, a self-pleasing, sarcastic spirit that would rather lose a friend 
than miss a clever stroke was how he would characterize the day. A self-pleasing, sarcastic spirit that would rather lose a friend than miss a clever stroke. And isn't that just the world we live in where if you can say the witty thing, if you can give the clever retort, if you can have the last word, that can often be what we value. But if you can continue on, again, looking at the wise man gives a soft answer, Proverbs 29, 11, but I'm actually gonna start in verse eight, says scoffers, another word for an angry man, set a city aflame, but the wise turn away wrath. If a wise man has an argument with a fool, the fool only rages and laughs and there is no quiet. Bloodthirsty men hate one who is blameless and seek the life of the upright. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. The picture here, and it was interesting as I was doing this, almost all these pictures in the Hebrew of anger and patience, they all describe facial expressions, and, and like hot air was this one. Like you just have this hot air, and that's probably, maybe that's where we got the phrase, but like you're just blowing out, right? You're just giving everyone the full fury of the furnace and the heat that is just coming out of you. And, um, and, and that is what this is, this picture, this full vent, this hot air, this storm that you're creating. When it says the wise man quietly holds it back, it doesn't mean that, you know, he's got great lip control, that even though it's all right there wanting to come out, he just holds it in. It actually means that he calms the storm in his heart of the anger. It is what is used to describe when Jesus calmed the storm. And he told, and you think about that, when the disciples were afraid and they said, we're gonna perish in the storm. Jesus didn't just like, cocoon them and get them to their side while the storm raged around. He didn't, he didn't, he actually stopped the whole storm. Like, he didn't just take care of the boat or them. He didn't just make sure that somehow they navigated the waves really wisely. He brought complete peace to the entire scene. The wind and the waves, it all stopped. And that is the picture of this holding back. It's that kind of calming of your emotions. That is what the wise man is able to do. He is able to stop the storm. It is a anger overcome, not merely checked, Derek Kidner says in his commentary. So we see that the wise man doesn't exalt his anger, the wise man doesn't gives a soft answer, and now we're gonna see the wise man, the wise overlook an offense, the wise overlook an offense. Turn to Proverbs 19.11. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Even if the anger is over sin, being given to anger is not necessarily less destructive than the hot-headed fool described elsewhere in Proverbs. So I just had to look at my own childhood to be able to illustrate this. My parents were always telling me, Katie, you were right, but your response always makes you wrong. So I'm having a fight with my sister, maybe she did something wrong, but I would become so angry and blow up so badly that what ha I would now be getting punished for my anger, which I thought was incredibly unjust. So then I was mad at my parents for that, so I would always get punished a second time. And then, usually at that point, I was like, I'm not giving in at this point. Like, I'm still pretty mad. And I would usually get punished a third time. So my sister maybe got a rebuke, like, you shouldn't take your sister's toy share. And meanwhile, I've gotten three spankings because I was angry, right? Like an out-of-control temper. And that was, like, you... I'm not exaggerating, my parents would be like, you know, 10 to one. Like, I got more spankings than all three of my sisters combined. So, this is like I said, it's kind of ironic I'm teaching on this topic. Um, so, you can be, but I was right, she, didn't, she took my toy, right? She didn't share, she said something nasty, 
right? But my anger was worse than the sin and the offense that was committed. And so you might even think, well, it's justified. It's starting on the right thing. But this proverb is telling us that that response can even be worse than what the hot-headed fool does throughout the book of Proverbs. It says, so one who is slow to anger has good sense, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. You know, I think we very much feel like, well, if I just let this go, I'm becoming a victim, right? I'm just, who's going to stand for what's right or for what's, what's true or for what's just in this situation? If I'm not angry, if I'm not, and there is an incredibly strong link between anger and unforgiveness. Almost always when you won't forgive somebody, anger plays a part in it. Maybe not the entire reason, but anger plays a part in it because you won't let go of your anger against them right? But he says it's a glory to overlook an offense. Throughout the whole book of Proverbs, the reason for overlooking an offense that's given is love, right? He says, um, love overlooks an offense over and over. And throughout scripture, Colossians, love binds all of these characteristics together. First Corinthians 13, the whole chapter on love, that you can have the gifts of prophecy and tongues and healing. And it doesn't matter if you don't have love, right? Love is of high, high importance to God. And it is the reason why we forgive and we overlook an offense. John MacArthur, in a sermon on, on forgiveness, said that we are never more like Satan than we hate and we refuse not to forgive. You know, he, is an, he hated from the beginning. He is a murderer, which anger in our hearts leads to murder. He is the father of lies. And then he said, but you're also never more like God than when you forgive, right? You're never more like God than when you forgive. And I, we can think that it's this weakness, possibly, but look at what's described. This word glory, glory to overlook an offense, it is a word that describes adornment, beauty, bravery. It is like you have a, there's a, almost a military image in the Hebrew saying, like, better than the strongest warrior who can take down his biggest enemy and who gets all the accolades for being the champion of the nation is the one who forgives they get that kind of glory and they get so in God's eyes and in God's economy where it matters when you forgive it's not weakness it's not letting somebody off the hook it's not ignoring it's letting God be the judge it's letting God deal with them and it is great and precious in God's eyes the wise overlook an offense and then number four the wise are disciplined and self-control flip back to Proverbs 6 in Proverbs 6 9 well we're gonna start a little bit before that when it says, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So the sluggard has asked a question here. How long? Like, how long are you going to stay in bed? And he doesn't say, I'm, like, I'm never getting up. But he just kind of gives us a vague, oh, sometime. I'll get up later. Sometime, right? Just let me sleep a little bit longer. It's a specific question with a vague response. That sometimes shows us that he is incapable of making and keeping a firm commitment. Waltke says, again in his commentary, by contrast, the diligent person plans and commits himself to its execution. He makes a plan, and he commits himself to that plan's execution. That re repetition of the word little, a little slumber, a little sleep, right, a little folding of the hands, emphasizes, Ger Derek Kidner says, that it's not many lost moments of work that bring on disaster. It's just a little. The man who's refusing to do what's right deceives himself by the smallness of his surrenders. 
Do we do that? Do we deceive ourselves by the smallness of our surrenders? It's just a little more sleep. But by inches and minutes, his opportunity slips away. And that is another one that just really struck me. It's the small habits, speaking of self-discipline, it's the small decisions that make up your life. And it was those small compromises that bring on this man destruction. It doesn't mean that he just becomes poor. It means he doesn't have the necessities of life. It means he's like this homeless vagabond who can't feed himself, right? It's complete destruction of his life. I think it was Kidner, I forgot to write down. Kidner or Waltke said in their commentary that lazy people have exaggerated desires and Again, in my past, this has been illustrated to me by another family member who always had these like huge expectations of themselves, these grandiose things they were gonna do. But really, they really struggled to get out of bed, in all honesty. Uh, it was <laughs> very, very parallel to this, um, to this pro- proverb. And so they were gonna go, you know, change the world, but they couldn't get up. And he said, again in his commentary, that lazy people have exaggerated desires and then they despair of them ever being fulfilled. And so they stay in bed because as much as they want to do these great, great things, they know they really can't probably do that and they just despair of doing anything. And it goes back to our desires and our wants that fuel the anger and also the laziness instead of the self-control that we need. We're going to be talking about diligence and laziness next week, so we're not going to spend as much time on this as we could. Um, But I just wanted to focus on what are the things we're supposed to be disciplined about. There are many, but I wanted to again remind us of the spiritual disciplines. Prayer, reading the word, scripture memorization, and meditation. You could almost replace this question and say, how long until you are faithful to do your Bible reading? How long until you will devote yourself to prayer? How long until you'll quit making excuses for not memorizing and meditating on God's word? These are all questions we could ask ourselves in place of the little sleep, the little slumber. And I know I'm preaching to the choir, you guys all could be doing something else today. You sacrifice to come here, you commit your time and your week to come here, and you're doing Bible study. So I'm not trying to say, oh, you, you, none of you study your Bible. I know that you do. Um, but to be women who, as we go out and impact, are encouraging and helping others to value what is most valuable to Christ and helping them to walk. Because really, um, I think sometimes people think, well, Katie must be really great at her Bible reading or prayer or whatever because she teaches Bible study. And I'm like, thank goodness I teach Bible study. It keeps me in the Bible. <laughs> like, it is the biggest thing. It's, it's the easiest area, I think, for Satan to attack and the area he focuses on the most. It is just so easy to be distracted and have very important things come up. Um, prayer takes a lot of concentration. The older you get, the harder memorization and meditation becomes. If they're not habits that are established early, it's hard to learn new habits, right? I just think this is where the battle is won and lost. So think through, one thing that always helped me, um, a, my pastor shared this one time in a chapter, he said, in a chapel in college, he said, when we think about a sin, whatever it offers us, we stop with the, the pleasure of the sin. So if you think about an affair, you think about the pleasure of the affair, if you think about, you know, oh, I want to buy that thing even though it's out of budget and it's going to put us in debt, but you really think about what that thing will do for you that you're going to buy. When you think about sin, you stop at the pleasure and you don't think about the consequences. You never play that out in your mind. But if we were to play out the consequences, how would that change how we thought about the pleasure of the sin? So think through a life that isn't devoted to prayer and scripture memorization and reading and think through the real consequences that we will see. And when you strengthen one area of your life, you strengthen all of them. We can't attack everything at the same time, right? If you focused on um, just one area of growth, you're gonna see it impact every area of your life. Just like if you let go of one area, 
it impacts every area of your life. We're, we're too interconnected of beings and in all ways to, for it to be compartmentalized. So one thing, this, again, I've been thinking about self-control for myself for multiple years, and I've just been pulling, I've been finding verses on it. I've been putting it into an app I have on my phone called Evernote, and I've just been praying through them, that God would create in me more self-control and help me to grow in this area. And I just wanted to share a few of the verses to encourage you and also to emphasize what God wants from us, because God very much wants us to be self-controlled people. In, first, uh, sorry, in Romans 6, 12, he says, Therefore, let not sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. I mean, right there you can pray that you, know, you wouldn't let sin reign in your body. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. That's one I've really been praying, that I would not present my, my members. For, like it's, you can just pray scripture, right? Um, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Again, pray that you would be an instrument for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Do you realize you don't get to make your own decisions because you've been purchased? You've been bought with the blood of Christ? So glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There's nothing that escapes. <laughs> Everything you do has to become under self-control and does it glorify God. It's a catch-all. 1 Timothy 5.9, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Titus 2, 11 through 12, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify himself for a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Ladies, there's no miracle grow for spiritual growth right? There's no shortcut. And Proverbs, we said at the very beginning, Proverbs is constantly putting the responsibility on us to be proactive, to seek, to find, to look for, to listen to, to respond to wisdom. And there are, again, great promises, eternal life, heaven, hope, perfect rest that Brian's been talking about, that wholeness that we long for is the promise. But it is delayed gratification, it's going to come. It's for sure going to come, but it's not this moment as we wait for Christ to return. But as you're thinking through this, I don't want us to think, okay, well, I've got to go in my power and my strength and do this. Or, wow, I'm really angry. I have no self-control, and how am I going to conquer this? But remember that we have a great high priest. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help and grace in the time of need. So we have a, a high priest. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us who can make this spiritual growth, who can help us overcome anger, develop self-control, and we can approach the throne of grace. We can draw near to God because of him. And 2 Timothy 1.7 says, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. But to fight the flesh does require suffering, right? To fight, and I think that's what we, somehow we think, well, this is really, I'm suffering. We almost think you're doing something wrong. 
But to fight the flesh requires something. And we again look to our Savior who resisted sin to the point of shedding blood. I would guess that none of us have gone that far, right? So we, it is, it's a battle and it's a fight, but we have one who's already been victorious and one who intercedes for us, one who has given us his spirit, and we can draw near to the throne. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your spirit and the great work that he can do in us. I thank you that your mercy and your grace is greater than any of our sin and that you, where, great, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. Because I know that we all struggle to obey you like we want, but your grace is greater. And I pray that we would draw near to your throne, that we would depend on you and your spirit and your word to fight and battle against sin, and that you would bless that and you would make us more like your son. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.